since we're going to be continuing looking at the Beatitudes this morning, I'm going to read the same scripture passage again uh, found in Matthew um, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Charles Spurgeon, the famous London preacher of the 19th century, said this, I believe that one reason why the church of God has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Harold Lunzel, a former editor of Christianity Today from the last century, wrote these words. It is right for the church to be in the world. It is wrong for the world to be in the church. A boat in water is good. That's what boats are for. However, water inside the boat causes it to sink. And then David Platt, author of the book Radical and current pastor of McLean Bible Church outside of Washington, D.C., writes these words. We must be careful across the church not to minimize the magnitude of what it means to follow Christ. We must make sure not to preach a gospel that merely imagines Christ as a means to a casual, conservative, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. The gospel is a call for every one of us to die, to die to sin and to die to self and to live with unshakable trust in Christ, choosing to follow his word, even when it brings us into clear confrontation with our culture. These three voices from three different centuries are essentially saying the same thing. There is always a danger of Christians and the church accommodating the teachings of Jesus to the culture and adjusting his teaching to fit or accommodate our lifestyle so that eventually Christians and the church are virtually indistinguishable from one another. 
And that is the challenge for us as we continue in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We've just begun the sermon. We're looking at what we call the Beatitudes. And Jesus is confronting us with the kind of righteousness that he desires of his followers. And the challenge is that we conform ourselves to his standard and not try to conform him to us, to ourselves. So today I've entitled this message, Radical Righteousness, as we're going to look at three of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We began looking at the Sermon on the Mount last week. As you know, it's part of our ongoing study in the book of Matthew. And Jesus' message had been, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And for those who repent, now he's taking this opportunity to teach them, teach us how we are to live. How we are to live as followers of Jesus. And last week we looked at three of these what we call Beatitudes, that righteous behavior that God desires and should characterize those who are part of the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We saw this last week. A casting aside of our self-sufficiency and to have a total dependence upon God daily in all that we do, a conscious dependence recognizing that we are just spiritually bankrupt of ourselves, and we need, we need him every hour. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said. This is to hate and despise and mourn over our sinfulness. Even our constant daily falling short of what God wants us to be. It means to take it seriously. Not being deluded to think about ourselves. Well, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I know a lot of other people worse than I am. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. And then Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek. This is a renunciation of our agenda and power, but rather a gentleness of spirit, especially toward those who are weak and powerless. So all, all three of these are counterintuitive, countercultural ways of thinking and living, but these are part of what God desires for us as followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at three more of these Beatitudes today, three more aspects of what really is radical righteousness. First one, verse 6, an insatiable desire to follow Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now to review, the word bless, blessed or blessed, however you choose to pronounce it, 
The word has two aspects. The first is that when, when, when Jesus said, like in this one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, it's a character quality, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a character quality of which God approves and God desires. He's telling us what it is that God desires. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who want. That's what God desires. Of that of which he approves. And, and those who demonstrate, there's a second aspect to the word blessed or blessed. And those who demonstrate that quality are fortunate because of the blessing that will be upon them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. That's what God desires. And they are fortunate because they will be satisfied. All right, let's begin now, verse 6. By trying to define righteousness, what exactly is Jesus referring to when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? When we hear the word righteousness, we might be tempted to think of those things that are largely Victorian and negative, you know, rules that say what we can't do and what we, they, they, they tell us what we, that we can't do what we want to do and tell us that we have to do what we don't want to. But, but that's, that's not what righteousness is all about. It's much more than that. It's a broad, term righteousness is a, is a broad or general term that refers to the, the summary, you might say, of the right quote-unquote, behavior that God desires in us. These eight Beatitudes that we're looking at, they are eight expressions of that righteousness for which Jesus said we should hunger and thirst. The entire Sermon on the Mount is an expression of that right behavior, which we'll shortly see today that it's not only about our external behavior, but it has a great deal to do with what's on the inside as well. This righteousness of which Jesus speaks here, it's a prominent theme, if not the prominent theme in Scripture. We go back into the Old Testament, and we have the Proverbs instructing us in practical righteousness. We can even go back before that to the very foundation of the nation of Israel and those the, the, the Ten Commandments are the righteousness that God desires in his people. And then you have the prophets calling the people to righteousness. And then you have the apostles in the church calling the church to now imitate the righteousness of Jesus. Paul talks about it this way as the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness. And in fact, every New Testament book, every New Testament book has instructions on this righteousness, on the right behavior that God desires in us. And this righteousness that God desires, it's not just a personal thing, you know, like between me and God. Righteousness is concerned 
with right relationships. And God's desire is there to be right relationships in the church, in marriage, in society, even in government. And that righteousness we call justice. And therefore, as a believer, this is what we should want. God's righteousness in our life and all of life. We should desire that. In fact, Jesus says here, we should hunger and thirst for it. That's what he really approves. Those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness. Notice the imagery that he chooses here. Hunger and thirst. These are some of the strongest of human drives. We cannot live without water or food. Our bodies are wired. That's just the way we're created to seek them. If necessary, at any cost. It's life or death when it comes to food and water. It's an intense longing. It's a passionate pursuit. And the verbs that Jesus uses here suggest a continuous, ongoing hunger and thirst, longing and seeking. You know, if you're really hungry, if you're really thirsty, that's all you think about. That, that's all you can think about. If you're really hungry and thirsty, it becomes a, it becomes a driving force in your life. And that is precisely the insatiable desires that Jesus says that we should have for righteousness. To seek the behavior that God desires with an insatiable desire. A constant, relentless pursuit, a driving force to seek that righteousness more than anything else. And it is this hungering and thirsting for righteousness that God approves. Blessed are those who seek that right behavior with God with such continued passion and determination. And what is the result of such an impassioned pursuit of righteousness? They shall be satisfied. There will be a satisfaction in the soul that nothing no other pursuit in the world can compare. The word satisfy means to be, it means to be made completely full, as in well-fed. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 107, For he has satisfied my thirsty soul. It's like Jesus took his imagery right out of there. He has satisfied my thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. We are intentionally 
designed by our Creator in such a way that we can only find our greatest satisfaction in Him. We pursue it in a thousand different ways, but our greatest satisfaction can only be found in Him. They will be satisfied. Jeremiah said it this way, My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. You know, we're going to pursue something in life. Maybe it's ourself. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a cause, none of which may be bad. But our chief pursuit and insatiable desire must be unrighteousness, the right behavior that God desires in us to become more like Jesus in everything that we do. It's radical. It's just radical to have that kind of desire, insatiable desire. Well, we look at another aspect of radical righteousness, and that is that we are called to be a helper of the helpless. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is that quality of compassion and help toward those in distress. And especially when that one in distress has no claim on your goodness. It's one thing to help your child. Well, yeah, they've got to kind of claim on, you know, your, your goodness there. He's your, he, he or she is your child. But to help someone else, a, a friend, a stranger, someone you've never even met, they have no claim on your goodness. But that's what mercy is. Mercy is receiving a goodness that we did not deserve, but we desperately need. Mercy would in, in include things like material blessings, food, or housing, financial assistance, but mercy also includes things like forgiveness or friendship and patience. One writer says this, Mercy is meeting people's needs. It's not simply feeling compassion, but showing compassion. Not only sympathizing, but giving a helping hand. Mercy is giving food to the hungry. Comfort to the bereaved. Loved to the rejected. Forgiveness to the offender. And companionship to the lonely. It is therefore one of the loveliest and noblest of all virtues. And you know, God is the ultimate source and standard of mercy. Scripture abounds in the exaltation of God's mercy as we uh, sang this morning. Scripture abounds. The Lord is merciful and gracious. His mercy is great unto the heavens. His mercy is everlasting. His mercy endures forever and on and on. Scripture 
exalts his mercy. But I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to let this sink in. We all know, we sang about it wonderfully this morning, God's mercy, okay? But I want this to sink in somehow, that in Jesus, God has been merciful to us. That means that his goodness has come to us when he saw us as helpless and in need. We have no claim on his goodness, his favor, his blessing. But he looked upon us when we were undeserving and gave his blessing to us in Jesus. We deserve none of it. Now, the Old Testament law and the prophets called the people of God to mercy. But the culture in which Jesus lived, the Roman culture, was basically, you might say, anti-mercy. One of the Roman philosophers called mercy a disease of the soul to be merciful. The same is often true today. Most people find attractive and have a desire to emulate success and power and uh, being at the top of one's game, you know, having it all. These are the things that are most often desired today. But Jesus says, not necessarily so among my followers. It's like he's saying, sure, there's nothing wrong with being successful or being at the top. He says, but that's not what really impresses me. Being merciful when you're at the top or on your way to the top, that's what impresses me. Well, Someone might say, well, I can't get to the top by being merciful. Well, then maybe you shouldn't try to get to the top, if that's what it takes. Maybe we should rise only as high as we can without violating God's standard for our behavior. And this is true, not just in the business or the corporate world, but in the church world as well. There are countless stories of abuse and corruption of power in churches. And sadly, particularly in megachurches. And what happens is that a church can become, doesn't necessarily have to happen, but it can happen, that a church can become so large that it ceases being the church as God has designed the church to be. And in order for it to continue, in order for it to function, it becomes a business. It becomes a brand. And then in order to, for that to continue to perpetuate it, 
It has to abandon God's standard of right behavior, like mercy, like being poor in spirit, like mourning for sin, like gentleness of spirit. And it takes on the ways of the world to keep the business going. I read these stories every week. Jesus calls us to follow him. And one aspect of that is being merciful, showing mercy. It might look foolish. Others may say, well, you're being taken advantage of. And certainly we want to be wise in showing mercy. Helping an alcoholic buy more alcohol isn't showing mercy. It's not helping the individual. But merciful we must be. And Jesus says, for those who are, they shall receive mercy. They shall receive a reward, a reward sometimes in this life, but certainly in the next, far beyond what they have ever deserved. God loves it when his people show mercy. And he commends them and he rewards them for their mercy. Well, we move on to yet another, a third aspect for today in this radical righteousness. And this is to be clean from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's begin here by talking about the heart. We kind of instinctively know what, what the heart is. <clears throat> the heart refers to the person we really are. Not just what we appear to be. Our heart is the summation of our thoughts in our desires, our values, our feelings, our affections, and our behavior when we're not performing, when we're truly ourselves. That's what the heart is, the person that we really are. And we like to say it's on the inside. And you know, God is a God of the heart. The Bible talks about the heart over 800 times. That's a lot. 800 times. The heart is what matters most to him. That's because that it talks about who we really are, not what we appear to be. 1 Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. <clears throat> the contrast in Jesus' day was clear. The Pharisees were notorious for outward appearances of righteousness while being corrupt in their hearts. And Jesus constantly denounced them 
for their charade. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. We'll come to that passage as we continue through Matthew. And here it's like Jesus is just pushing aside all of the face-saving stuff and says, God wants you to be pure in heart. This is what matters. This is what's important. So, what does this really mean? How do we do this? Well, I think it might begin by saying, I've really got to seriously deal with who I am. With the person that I am. What's really important to me? What are my values, my real values? Not my stated values, but the ones that show up in the way I act and where I give my time and I spend my money. What are my values and my priorities? What kind of person am I or have I become? Not what others may think of us, but what kind of person am I? And then we may want to do an intense examination that says whatever is in my heart, whatever is in my life that's not pleasing to God has got to go. You see, this carries mourning for sin, which Jesus already said, blessed are those who mourn. This carries mourning for sin a step further. Mourning for sin is we lament the sin that is in our life. Now we deal. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now we deal with that sin in our heart. Whatever it may be. To confess. To repent. To do away with it. Resentment, anger, jealousy, lust, greed, hatred, prejudice, bitterness. All of those things that sometimes just reside within us. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to remove the sin. We must replace it with godliness and Christ-likeness by hungering and thirsting after righteousness, doing all we can to saturate our minds and ultimately our heart with the things of God because we want God to fill our heart, the things of God, through prayer and study of the Word and listening to the teaching of the Word with an open heart to receive and hear what God says in His Word. This is the way that we pursue a heart that is pure before God. And what does Jesus say of what does Jesus say of those who are pure in heart? He says, they shall see God. Certainly, all believers will one day see God. But for those who really seek Him now, with a pure heart, even at great cost, if necessary. 
they will be rewarded with a capacity to see and experience God in a greater way. I think a story from, you know, maybe it's apocryphal, I don't know, but I've heard this story about George Whitfield and John Wesley. This story might be able to illustrate this. Both of these were great preachers of the 18th century uh, in that first great, what's called the first great awakening. But there was at times great contention between Whitfield and Wesley over doctrine, primarily Calvinism and Arminianism for, for what it's worth. But there was a lot of contentiousness there. And it was once, as the story goes, asked of George Whitfield if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. To which George Whitfield replied, probably not. The questioner was kind of surprised, but Whitfield continued. He said, because John Wesley will be so close to the throne, and I'll be so far at the back. I may never get to see him. See, the point is that those who are pure in heart will be blessed by seeing God in a special way. So what should we do now? These are the three we'll look at today with this radical righteousness of Jesus. Well, Allow me again to quote from David Platt. Are we going to follow Jesus? Not, are we going to bow our heads, say a prayer, read the Bible, go to church, give a tithe, and then just get on with the rest of our lives? But are we going to follow Jesus with all our lives, no matter where he leads us to go, how countercultural the task is, or what the cost may be for us, our families, and our churches. This is the challenge of following Jesus. To allow the words of Jesus to really make a difference in our lives and not to simply accommodate the words of Jesus to us, to ourselves. Today we looked at three Beatitudes, three aspects of this radical righteousness to which Jesus calls us. To hunger and thirst after righteousness and insatiable desire to follow him. And you know, this might be where it all begins. Are you hungry? Are you thirsting for Jesus? Or is following him and his ways just one of many pursuits in your life and you just accommodate him to your existing life. To be a helper of the helpless. Blessed are the merciful. Let's face it. We can't help everyone in need. We know that. We don't know how to help everyone. But Jesus has called us to be merciful. And that must characterize our lives. Merciful we must be. To be clean from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
It begins by ruthlessly taking an inventory of our heart and facing ourselves in the mirror as to the person that we really are. We cry out to Jesus that he would replace all of the junk in our hearts with himself. But this is the challenge. Let me illustrate it this way. Look up here. This is God's standard of righteousness here. And this is where we are. Okay? We need to move ourselves closer to God's standard of righteousness. We'll never arrive there, and we'll sometimes go forward, and we'll go back, but we need to keep pursuing that instead of trying to bring God's standard down to accommodate it to us by rationalization, justification, whatever we do to explain away why we don't have to do that. No, let the standard remain. Let us change and pursue and draw closer to that radical righteousness. Would you seek him today? And his radical righteousness, allow the words of the prophet Isaiah to speak to you. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not, let's add the word, ultimately satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance, the abundance of the Lord. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Jesus calls us to follow him in radical righteousness. And it is only this that truly satisfies. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are again grateful. Words cannot adequately express our gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you've done for us in Jesus. The way we have been blessed, we are truly objects of mercy because we are so unworthy. So unworthy. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit might continue your work in our hearts, in our lives, that we might pursue in greater measure this radical righteousness to which you've called us. Lord, we think we're most comfortable where we are and most fulfilled, and yet our true fulfillment comes in following you. Open our eyes to see this, Lord, and may the Spirit of God work to give us the boldness and the courage and the strength to say, enough. I've got to change. I can't go on like this anymore. I want to follow you, Lord. 
may the Spirit of God work mightily and powerfully among us today. In Jesus' name.